Amen. Well, I invite you to open the Word of God this morning to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Old Testament book of Malachi, as Pastor Adam mentioned last week, we're going to be stepping away from the book of Romans for the month of August, and we're going to dive into this short little Old Testament book. If you're having uh, trouble or need help finding Malachi, uh, turn to the book of Zechariah, and it's the first book on the right after Zechariah. If that doesn't help, go to the Gospel of Matthew and turn left. It's the first book on the left. As we turn in our Bibles to this Old Testament book, we need to also try to turn back in our minds to this time period in salvation history. As you might recall, in the year 722 B.C., the northern ten tribes were conquered by the nation of Assyria, and in 586 B.C., Babylon conquered Judah, destroyed the temple, killed thousands, and took many into exile back to Babylon. It wasn't until about 70 years later that God brought his people back to Jerusalem under Persian leadership. And the book of Daniel, as uh, you're aware, in the Old Testament, and his life spanned this length of time from the deportation until God's people returned. And around 515 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. Ezra ministered during this time, the book of Ezra, and also after Ezra, Nehemiah came to minister in this time period. The walls were rebuilt around Jerusalem. Sacrifices were being offered at the temple, and many of God's people were coming back into the land after dis their disobedience had spit them out of the land, as God said would happen when they disobeyed him. So they're back, and it was in this time period that Malachi ministered. He was called to speak to the people here in Jerusalem that he was writing to, and we're somewhere in the 400s uh, time period here in the middle of the 400s. Four, so Israel was back in the promised land, but they were not doing good. The temple was rebuilt, but it was nothing like Solomon's that had come before them. They were sort of back as a nation, but they were small. They were seemingly inconsequential in the grand scheme of this world. They weren't ruling Persia. They were being ruled by Persia along with over 150 other small nations. And compared to the surrounding nations around them, Israel was just really insignificant dot on the map. They looked around at their nation. They considered the promises that God had given to them. They looked. There was no king on the throne. What about the promises God had made to David of his descendants ruling and reigning forever? And what of the land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey? They were struggling with their crops. They were, even before this time period, having to pay tribute to those ruling over them. Their hope was seem, seemingly lost, and their love for God began to wane. And it showed up in their worship, which is always the case. When our love for God begins to wane, it really shows up in corporate worship. 
when our love for God is low, our worship for God is cold, distant, maybe even mechanical. Israel didn't fall back into idol worship, which is good. That is physical idols set up to worship. But they fell into monotony. They fell into the sin of just, we might say, going through the motions. Perhaps an outward appearance of faith, but not much inward conviction, not much inward devotion. They were complacent. They were cruising. They were plateaued. And so God sends his prophet to deliver his message to his people. And this book is a book of calling back, calling back to covenant fidelity, calling back to confidence in the covenant of God and calling back to the promises of God. Malachi indeed seeks to expose their complacency and he seeks to renew their faith. It's my prayer that this book would have the same effect upon us as God's people. Maybe you are in a type of lull, spiritually speaking, struggling with complacency. A time maybe in your life where it seems like you're just going through the motions in worship, going through the motions of Bible reading. No, you need to do that or struggling to do that in your walk with the Lord. Wanting to live in obedience to Him but not really fighting to carry that out. Maybe in your life right now, you would say, spiritually, I'm strong, I'm doing, I'm doing well, I'm doing good, I'm growing the Lord, I'm, I see and I'm focusing on the cross and I'm growing in his grace and his mercy. Well, whoever you are this morning, I'm confident that God has a word for us this morning through the book of Malachi. Whether that's to call us towards obedience and back from complacency, or whether that's to just strengthen us in the path that you are walking, or by God's grace to see your need to trust in Jesus as your Savior who died on the cross for your sins. So as we turn to the book of Malachi, let's first turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you join me? Father, we come to your word as a dependent people. We are dependent upon you for every single thing. We're dependent upon you for salvation. We're dependent on the strength that you give, for we know that in our weakness, you are strong. So, Father, as we open your words this morning, would you open our hearts? Would you encourage us as your Holy Spirit takes your living and active word and strikes us with it? In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, this book begins with an introduction of sorts. If you look with me at Malachi chapter 1, verse number 1, it says there, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. An oracle could also be translated as a burden. It's a word that definitely has the idea of correction behind it. Just like uh, in your days of school, when you might hear the principal say, come into my office, we need to talk. That's the sort of feel this word has to it of an oracle that God is sending to 
his people. God is communicating to his people here. We see it is, quote, the word of the Lord. And praise God that he speaks to us. Praise God that when we are struggling, when we are plateaued, maybe even when we're apathetic towards God, God comes and speaks to us. So what is God going to point out about his people? What's God going to point out about their struggle and their apathy and and in their lack of confidence in God? What's he going to point to? Well, there's two main points, two main areas where Israel is struggling, where God in this first chapter is just going to touch on and press them on. God speaks about their, first of all, their inaccurate evaluation. They have an inaccurate evaluation, and secondly, they have a hollow worship. So we're going to see those two points here this morning. Let's first look at an inaccurate evaluation. As you're looking in your Bibles, you can see uh, even probably by how it's marked off, verse 2 to 5, and there verse 6 to 14. So those will be our two two points here this morning. Verse uh, 4, excuse me, 2 to 5 and 6 to the end of the chapter. So an inaccurate evaluation. When you're struggling, it's hard to get your bearings. When a fog is settled in on your life, sometimes it's hard for you in the midst of it to make sense of what is going on and what's happening. Israel was no different. As we just described, Israel's circumstances were not the best, and so God comes in and he speaks to them. And first off, in this verse, we see a reminder of God's love in the very first part of verse number two. Look at it with me. I have loved you, says the Lord. So God begins, you you think, as we know what oracle means, you're being called into the office, so to speak, and and you're waiting kind of to get it. And here's where the Lord opens up. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. God is reminding them of his covenant love that God has set upon his people. It's a reminder of what God has done in the past to bring them to where they currently are in the present. It's an affirmation. An affirmation of God continuing to work with his people, to work in their life, and to work through them. It's not simply here a strict past tense. It's it's thought is a past tense that has ongoing ramifications and that carries into the present. God still loves them. He says, I've loved you. We could spend a lot of time on that. But we're going to jump into the second part here is their response to God's statement. Look at what they say. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? This is a response of ingratitude. How have you loved us? Wow. What a response to God's declaration of covenant love. They're asking here, in what way? In what way, God, have you loved us? They're looking around. They see a temple. They see a small temple. It's there, but it's not what the old one used to be. And they're looking around at the nation and the Old Testament, the promises that God had given to his people. What about their strength? What about their might? 
They were not seen as a nation where people were actually flocking to Israel. It didn't seem like God's promises were having any effect whatsoever. And their reply betrayed their disbelief and bewilderment. They were looking at their situation and made a major incorrect evaluation. They thought to themselves, if God loved us, then our circumstances would surely be better than this. Well, how is God going to answer them? <laughs> what, what's God going to say? Well, uh, God loves history, and you should too. And God gives kind of a, a history lesson to them, third off, in the second part uh, of verse number two. Don't worry, we're gonna, I've got, already got like three subpoints in one verse. Don't worry, we're, we're going to start tracking here in a minute. So, verse two, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. God's giving them here a history lesson to show his love for them. God graciously shows and proves to them in a concrete way how he has loved them. Basically, he's answering them with, with a question here. How have you loved us, God? And he says, well, Esau sure is Jacob's brother, isn't he? God's saying, look, you, you can tell of my love for you because I have chosen you. I've chosen you to give these promises to you and to sustain you and to work through your lineage, the lineage of the Jews. And this is in contrast to Esau, Jacob's brother, and Edom, that is the descendants of Esau. So Esau's followers are Edom. This verse is quoted, we looked at it a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, where Paul is teaching about God's divine purpose in election. And how election is a work of God's free grace, not something that is earned or merited. As he points to the choice, God's, God's free choice of, of Jacob over Esau. It's not because of any action that any man does that God chooses them. This is clearly seen for God chose the one even when they were in the womb. And Malachi points to it here also to show that God's election is proof of his love for his people. You see, they had lost any sense of wonder at what God had done for them. In fact, God's promises were being fulfilled right in front of their very eyes. They were brought back into the promised land as God had promised, just as Jeremiah had predicted in Jeremiah 29. And God had worked mightily to bring them back into the land. Just think of the Old Testament book of Esther that took place with all that King Ahasuerus and all of those people and how God brought Esther up to power and the Jews, they were going to get it. God was going to snuff them out and God worked and lo and behold, to use that, it turned against uh, uh, the, God's enemies. God came and defeated them because of it. The book of Daniel, the book of Ezra, all these things are taking place and they began to take their salvation for granted to not focus on God nor the forgiveness that God brings. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, how this leads us to ingratitude and to an inaccurate evaluation of our circumstances. So God points to the past, his electing love that he has shown them, that he has given to them. He points to this lesson from history. And he also points a lesson to the future for them in verse number five. He says, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Malachi continues to point to God's electing love by showing how Esau's offspring, Edom, they didn't have these promises. They didn't have these promises of God. Instead of a promise, what do they have? A promise of blessing. They have a promise of curse. God promised to tear down what they would build. He's like, see, I have loved you. I've chosen you. I've given you these promises. Edom over here, they might look strong. There's a lot of history with Edom uh, here in Esau, even coming out of the promised land when they're like, can we cross along your lawn and, and just we're not gonna, we'll pay for anything we take and Edom's absolutely not. And there's always a bunch of history with Edom. There's bad blood there. And he's saying, look, Edom doesn't have these promises. In fact, they're gonna try to build up and I will tear it down. I will tear down what they do. And in fact, that is exactly what played out in history in 313. By the time 313 BC rolled around, Edom was a dispersed and a conquered nation as the Nabataeans were in full control of their land. Not to return. God wanted them to see the promises he had made to them and contrast that with Edom to show his love for them. It's a point pointing to the future when this would take place and it's a reminding them of the promises that God had made to his covenant people. Well, what are we to take from these verses, verses four to five? Well, Israel made the mistake of doubting God's love because of the circumstances they were in. Israel made the mistake of doubting God's love for them because of the circumstances they were in. They wrongly thought, if God loves me, then all his promises will easily come to pass in my life. And we face that exact same temptation in our lives. We can look with our eyes at life's situation of things that are happening right in front of our very eyes and in our own lives. And maybe it's a difficulty, a difficult circumstance that we're facing. Maybe it's a troubled circumstance that we're going through or a monotonous circumstance that we, we just don't see any end to. And we can kind of get to the point where we're saying, well, God must not love me since I'm going through this. I don't know if Israel actually said that. Like if that verbalized the word, how has God loved us? But that's what they were saying with their hearts. That's what they were saying with their lives. My, my guess is you would probably not say that to God. If God said, like we've been singing about the love of God. How has God loved me? You probably wouldn't do that. But you would be tempted to think, oh, if God was more in control or if God, if he would just be gracious to me, then I wouldn't have to be going through this. God, if, if, maybe God's holding back on me because he's brought me in this situation. We can begin to see our circumstances and come to a wrong evaluation. And the New Testament tells us, 
It has a lot to say about trials, doesn't it? The New Testament tells us that when we face trials, they're actually good because they test our faith and our faith is produced into a steadfastness within us. We're told to not look around in this life that, to the things that are seen, but we're to look around to the things that are unseen and the reality is the things that are unseen are actually eternal and the things that are seen are transient. They're here and they're going. God's word comes to us today through the prophet Malachi and says to us from Scripture and the remaining of Scripture and the Gospels, I have loved you and I have shown my love to you by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. God showed his love for us. He demonstrated his love by sending his only begotten son into this world. Let us focus on that let us focus on the gospel. And we, when we begin to go down this path of doubting God's love for us, when we doubt his love, inevitably, we are taking our eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we begin, just like Peter walking on the water, begin to look away and begin to sink. And so ingratitude is solved by looking to the straight promises of God. And the straight promises of God is sinners can be forgiven. The great promise of God is enemies can now be called sons and daughters of God. Enemies can now be brought close and into the family of God through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And this changes our perspective about life. It changes our perspective because we know that this life is transient. This life is fleeting and the life to come is eternal. And it helps us. It says, yes, in this life, Jesus actually said, we will have trouble. We will have trouble. There's a promise for you. You're going to have trouble following after Christ. And so it helps us to get our perspective off of the situations and onto the promises of God. Whenever we begin to have a seed of ingratitude growing in our hearts and producing fruit in the way we speak and our disobedience in our actions, I can guarantee you we're taking our eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the Israelites wrongly thought that God wasn't working on their side because of their situations. And this bled over into their worship, their worship of God. Think, think here corporate worship, right? All of life is worship. Every day is worship, right? We're a living sacrifice of worship to God. There's also an aspect of this of corporate worship that is a day of the week that we set aside to worship the Lord. And when our lack of love, uh, our, our lack of love towards God is waning, it inevitably shows up in the way we worship God. And that's what God points out secondly here, a hollow worship, a very hollow worship. The worship of God, you see, is both outward and internal. Outward and internal through action and motivation behind those actions. Things you see and things from inside of attitudes and all of that. Israel was at a place where there was outward appearance, there was an outward appearance, but not much inward devotion to God. 
we would call this, we say, just kind of going through the motions, doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. That's where Israel was. And so three things Malachi exposes in them. First is a lack of fear. Look at verse 6 to 8. Malachi points to their lack of fear. Listen again to the question and, and response taking place. Verse 6 to 8. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If them I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon, upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. So God, God, God speaks, as you see here, first and foremost to the priests. More on the priests in chapter number two. I think the lens is going to focus in on them. But this message is, is very closely tied to the worshipers, likewise, that come to give their offering to the priests to offer up to God. And God here likens himself to a father and a master. And he calls out the priests and tells them that they're not honoring him, they're not fearing him. And he actually describes him, keep in mind, these are the priests that offer worship to God at the temple as people who despise my name. What a blow this would have been for the priests. What a blow also for the people to hear. The people who despise my name. To honor here is a word that literally means heavy. It means weighty. And he's saying you're not honoring me. You're not seeing me here as heavy, but the people were taking God lightly. It was a Christianity light sort of religion. Absent was the honor that is due Almighty God who is described here as the Lord of hosts. That's a term of armies, the Lord of armies, a term of power, a term of might. God is saying, I'm the Lord of armies, and the priests and the people are despising him. They're treating him as worthless. And their response was, how? God, how are we doing this? How have we despised your name? And God answers by offering polluted food upon my altar. Offering here is referred to as food because it, it would be meat, it would be grain that they're offering up to him. And they again say, how, how, how have we done this? In what way have we polluted you? You can kind of hear the, the tone in that voice and you can definitely he, see here about how they're speaking that they don't have this proper fear of God to take God heavily. As noted, a son or a daughter shouldn't talk to their parents like this, much less coming to God to speak like this. And God answers that they're despising his name by offering polluted offerings on the altar. Did you see what God referenced that as? I mean, just catch this. Just let this sink in for a minute. They're coming to the temple to worship God, and they're bringing their offerings to him. That might not be exactly what God wanted, but hey, they're bringing their stuff to him, and they're just kind of going through the mud, they know that's what they're supposed to do, and they come and they give it to the priest and they offer it, 
And what does God say about that type of worship? Evil. Evil. You think God's trying to get their attention? Not just bad, not, not just falling for That type of worship, God said, is evil. Evil. You wouldn't even give that to your governor. You, you wouldn't even give that to those that you're supposed to pay tribute to. That is, you're just the, the big bully, you know, that wants your lunch money. You, you, you don't even, you give him the good stuff. You wouldn't even give him some lame animal that has a broken leg. So he's exposing there's no fear, there's no honor. They've lost sight of who God is. They've lost sight of who they are worshiping because there's absolutely no fear there. You see, we must have a very good understanding of the nature of the God we worship. Even for us today, as we gather together in this service of worship, we must have a very good understanding of the God it is that we're singing to, that we're worshiping, that we're giving and obedience with our offering, that we're listening to the word of. If we understand who it is we are worshiping, we will have the proper heart devotion and response to him. If we focus on who it is we are worshiping, we will be, quite frankly, overwhelmed. We will be amazed. We, we will have honor, we will have respect, and we will have fear. A proper fear, not, not, a, not a cowering fear of, of judgment that doesn't want to have anything to do with someone. So in the closing hymn that's going to take place here in about two hours, don't worry, the, the, we're going to sing, of, the, there's not a fear. Well, the f- not fear we're speaking of here is, is not a cowering fear where we run away from God. The Bible calls us here to have a proper fear of God, a reverential fear, a fear of knowing who God is. If we don't know about who God is, about his nature, we're just going to have a flippant, flippant view of worship. We'll have a flippant, surfacy, veneer, thick level of obedience in our lives. For we're not really considering that the God we draw near to worship is the God who created every single thing out of nothing with a spoken word. You talk about raw power and might. Let there be light. And there was light. Right? We, we, we consider on that. You dwell on that. For, just put, your, put yourself in the, in the place of these people in the Old Testament. Just pick a spot. Go to Joshua. Go to Deuteronomy. Coming out of the Exodus when God comes and he appears on Mount Sinai there to Moses and they go up and the people are shaking with fear. Moses, you go up. We don't want to go up. We, we have fear of this God and there's an obedience and there's a we're dealing with something heavy, heavy here, not something light. The God we worship is the same God that we read about in the Old Testament. Israel in Malachi's day had lost sight of who it was they were worshiping. They were just going through a flippant motion. If that's you here this morning, what's the cure for that? The cure for that is to you to dwell on the character and nature of God. To dwell on who God is. The cure for that is to read God's word, to find out who God is in his word, who it is we come to worship. I have no doubt in my mind that 
when we die, we'll get this right. We'll get this correct. When we die, we, we will get this right. I, I wish I could have that uh, uh, dying and seeing and then come, coming back to help out so much better. But when we, I think one glimpse of hell will cure all of this for all of us. Because we see the heaviness and the weight of the glory of God and those that disobey God and those that don't trust in Christ as Savior. We see how heavy a thing it is to worship the Lord and how majestic and awesome God is and how he invites us into his family and how loving God is to call us in, those who are outcast through the blood of Jesus Christ. The second thing we see here is an invitation to return. So he's calling them out, but he's also holding forth an invitation to return in verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us, to us. To entreat means here to pray, to come to God asking. It's saying, ask God, come ask God. And it's an expression here, literally entreat the face of God, right? Entreat the face of God. God doesn't have a face, but he's just speaking. Entreat the face of God. It's an expression here. It's something like a child sitting up into the lap of their parents and kind of rubbing their face like this, like a child coming up to their parents. Now that might cause discipline for you to your child, like if they start, you know, coming, Dad, here, talking. But in this time, that was exactly the culture of the day, to come up and to rub their face and to ask for something. God is saying, humble yourself, entreat the face of God, come to God and ask him for mercy. Seek God's mercy favor it's an admonition of wrong asking for forgiveness a swallowing of pride a welling up of humility that's always the proper response to sin to seek God for forgiveness but if there's no repentance no seeking after God and entreating of his favor just listen to what the prophet says next in the rest of verse 9 and into verse 10 With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. That is with the lame offering. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. That's the flip side of not coming to God humbly and seeking for forgiveness. Man, these are strong words, aren't they, from the prophet? What a strong rebuke, saying, I wish somebody would just close the doors of the church than to come to me like this. I mean, that is a strong statement. I have no pleasure in you. What worse words could God say of us? I have no pleasure in you. Or depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. There's no worse words than that. And so these verses, they need to be a warning to us. And we need to hear them through the cross of Jesus Christ and let them sink into us. That God is not pleased with a sort of just coming to church to check the box, to do an outward thing with nothing going on internally. A hollow, void 
just coming to do the church thing all the time. We all struggle with complacency, and I'm not saying don't come to church when you feel like it, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Come to church even if you don't feel like it. It's the right thing to do, and pray for God to melt your heart, and he probably will when you come, right? God, help us if we ever get to the place, well, I'll go to church if I feel like it, right? Well, there's many a Sunday morning. Hope Adam isn't listening to this. I'm just kidding. There's a couple of Sunday mornings. You're right. I'm just tired. No, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to come, and God always encourages that, and God always works in our lives. But this is a sort of coming, just never just, you're happy when we get out of here. You're always counting time, and always, I can't wait to get out and just go to do my thing because I'm just doing this church thing, and I can't wait to go do my thing. That's what God is condemning here. If that is you, come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Come confessing that you are a sinner, that you have broken the laws of Almighty God and that God has provided forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Verse 11 tells us that God's name will be glorified in the nations, that he is a jealous God. We see that in verse 11. Look at it with me. From, for from the rising of the sun to the setting... My name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God is saying this is going to happen. My name is going to be praised. Return to me, come back to me, repent to me and allow that to happen here. And what a beautiful picture this is of the New Testament and the coming of Christ. And now people flocking to God through Jesus Christ all over the world, people calling on the name of God through Jesus Christ. This leads lastly here to this indictment of apathy. Verse 12 and 14 are very similar to verse 6 and 8, but also goes further into helping us understand the attitude that comes from this worship. Just look at verse 12 to 14 quickly. It says, but you profane it, that is my name, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Their lack of honor, their lack of fear, their apathy in worship is seen in their action. You see what they call obedience to the commandments of God? They call that a weariness. God, it's, it's a weariness trying to be obedient. They snort at it. I'm not going to practice that one. You can imagine just snorting at God. God commanded his people to bring the very best of their offerings to him. This is clearly taught in the Old Testament. Their crops, they're, uh, uh, sac- they're to bring them as a sacrifice. And here we see the people vowing to bring God their best, but when it came time to sacrifice, they bring in a substitute for the substitute. And they bring a lame one. Well, it's just God, you know. I mean, it's going to be killed 
anyway, or <laughs> the priest is going to get this tenderloin, and you know, that priest, let's just give, we'll give him a half, half uh, chipped up one, right? It'll be fine. And they give this to the Lord, and they bring their offering to the Lord, and they treated this like many times, like we treat clothing closets at church. Take this, give this away. I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't wear it. Give it to the church. Give it to the clothing closet. Right? Has no use of me. We don't have a clothing closet. You know about clothing closets, right? Of, of churches. Who in their life have ever, ever taken their favorite church, a shirt and given it to a clothing closet? Right? I, you're better than me. I've never done that. It's always been what I didn't use, what had a stain on it or something. That's what you get. That's what these people, that's how they were treating God. As if God said, give me the best that you have. Give me your best. And, and they just said, well, well here, this will do. This will do. Same thing for us today, even with our own lives, as we think of Romans chapter 12, to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. I'll give him what I have time for. You know, that whole impatient thing. Let's work on just something else. I'm not going to do that. I'll, we'll offer something else. I can smile a lot. I'll work on being joyful or vice versa or something like this. No, we're to give of God our very best. God has instructed us to give ourselves to God. And what we see happening in Malachi is this complacency came. They sought to please themselves, frankly, instead of pleasing God. I think what we need to take from this today is corporate worship as we come to God is not about what we want. It's not about what we want to offer God. In fact, I would offer to you corporate worship is not about us. The object of our worship is God Almighty. The great King, the Lord of armies, the one whose name will be feared among the nations. So, so today in, in corporate worship and in the life of our church, our default position should not necessarily be what we think about it. Our default position should always be, is God pleased? Is God pleased with what I am bringing to Him? Right? Not necessarily in corporate worship of what, where my preferences met, where I scratched was that itched and it'll be a good service if it was and if it wasn't, it's not. If it's not on 72, I didn't like it. Right? If it's 78, huh, it's horrible. I'm talking about the temperature here, not the length of the message, though we're getting close to that. Right? We're, we, we come to God, our default position should always be in our lives. Is God pleased with what is in my heart and my life as we come to worship? God is not a God who desires to be trifled with. The thing about it is, some of these offerings that they were bringing, maybe they were lame, but not everybody could tell. It's not like necessarily they were bringing three-legged creatures, dragging them by the neck. Maybe it was one they knew to be sick. Maybe it was new that they knew that would not reproduce. And so they said, nobody will see that. Just give that to God. Right? It's the same in our lives, we can't see into your attitudes, your motivations. But check those with the Lord. Am I offering God from a heart and life of devotion? When we begin to think that all of this is a weariness, 
this whole worshiping thing is a drag. Our problem's not so much being bored with corporate worship. Problem is mainly that we're pretty bored with God. And so the solution to that is we must remember who we are worshiping. We must realize why we do what we do. Why we sing. Why do we sing? Why do we sing when we gather? We sing to offer songs of praise to God. Right? We sing to God. We sing to Him. We sing because we're happy. <laughs> Not, we sing because we're happy in Jesus Christ. We sing because we're free of what Christ has done for us. And, and so that's why we do what we do. We pray. Why do we pray? Because we're completely dependent upon God. And prayer shows that, and we're commanded to do it. Prayer shows that. Why do we give? Because God's instructed us to give. How should we give? Not begrudgingly, but with a joyful heart. Why can we give joyfully? Because of what God has given to us. Why do we observe the ordinances as we're going to do today with the Lord's Supper? Why do we do that? Well, A, we've been commanded to. B, God uses this to feed us and to strengthen us in our faith. We need to remember why we do what we do and who we are offering our worship to. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the prophet Malachi. Father, would you forgive us when we come to you lightly? Lord, when we treat you without the respect that you are due. Lord, would you forgive us of complacency? Lord, would you help us if we're apathetic? Lord, would you help us to focus on who you are and what you've done for us? Lord, help us this day to ever hold on to the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We did not deserve it. It's all because of you. And Lord, we trust your promises. We come to you in faith. It's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.